Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Ferguson to Jerusalem, the criminals got badges. See, there's a Mike Brown in every town. Don't try to tell me that America was bound. We've been slaughtering innocents from the very beginning. Our country's been a big game while cynics fitting half-assed facts. Here's one for you. All men are supposedly created equal, right? Except apparently blacks folks get declared three kids when whites wrote the Constitution. And ever since then, even it, we keep abusing. Mass confusion on our own stated principles. These are empires seeming invincible. Murder with impunity when shot by a cop. But prosecutors persecute the block non-stop All the way from Ferguson to Jerusalem From Ferguson to Jerusalem From Ferguson to Jerusalem The real criminals have badges and guns From Ferguson to Jerusalem From Ferguson to Jerusalem From Ferguson to Jerusalem The real criminals have badges and guns See, we all strive, these are the human eyes Trying to find something high in the world where all might is Democracy, try monstrosity Look around, it's a power monopoly In which we grant you rhetorical freedoms while the fat men lead hedonistic lies is that we might as well die say it's all we do while alive is cry out of desperation frustration aggravation then the ultimate starvation if not of the body then of the soul working fingers at the ball precludes a holistic chance of living so we all are giving all our time to money hungry banks always joining the always swelling ranks of underappreciated undercompensated underrecognized underclass focus a lot of opportunity to gain success contributing by subsisting to the mess all around us it confounds us it hounds us all the way to an early grave from Ferguson to Jerusalem from Ferguson to Jerusalem from Ferguson to Jerusalem the real criminals have badges and guns from Ferguson to Jerusalem from Ferguson to Jerusalem from Ferguson to Jerusalem the real criminals have badges We're talking to Shahid Buttar, who is running against Nancy Pelosi in District 12. He is an activist that is head of grassroots uh, affairs for EFF. And he is a writer that has appeared, appeared in outlets like uh, Truth Out. Welcome, Shahid. So good to be with you, Tina. Yeah. So um, great that we have a good challenger to head up the fight against Nancy Pelosi because she's not very progressive and has been a problem. Um, in the house. And I wanted to first start though, by asking about uh, your grassroots advocacy at EFF. This week we had net neutrality back in the headlines. And I know EFF has been very, um, very central in fighting this fight. So tell me a little bit about the things that you've worked on in regards to net neutrality. So uh, with respect to the net neutrality fight, when our criminal president came into office, his appointee to chair the Federal Communications Commission, uh, Ajit Pai, led the attack on the Open Internet Order of 2015 mm-hmm. that we supported under the Obama administration to ensure that any user of the Internet could ensure uh, could access the global network on equal terms, regardless of their uh, ability to pay for access to a fast. Mm-hmm. Um, when the uh, FCC first mounted its attack on the Open Internet Order, I was... Uh, Working with our allies and a number of other organizations to plan, for instance, uh, made a demonstration here in San Francisco when Ajit Pai uh, visited, we sued uh, and supported an action principally started by Fight for the Future to initiate protests at Verizon stores around the mm-hmm. country, 
a grassroots network that I created at DFF, the Electronic Frontier Alliance. It includes an We were supporting coaching and uh, grassroots efforts to support both the congressional resolution to uh, to force the FCC to reverse its decision under the Trump administration uh, and now to press the Senate to support the uh, Save the Internet Act, which would uh, restore the 2015 rules. The House has already passed it. It remains pending before the Senate, mm-hmm. even though a vast majority of Americans support net neutrality for better or worse, it has uh, become a partisan issue on the Hill. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the big challenges uh, to getting it to move forward at the moment is encouraging Republican senators to show up for their constituents' right to access the Internet on equal space. Indeed. And it seems like regulatory capture is a big problem here because you have the folks that are supposed to be doing the regulations at the FCC are all ex, you know, Comcast, Verizon, industry folks that are, so it's like Fox is guarding the hen house at this point. Uh, But you would imagine that the Republicans, in the way that they are constantly yammering on about First Amendment rights, would understand the issue. But it seems to to me that they're making the argument that the actual First Amendment rights would be to support, uh, not support net neutrality, which is sort of upside down. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I mean, Republicans often, uh, conservatives, even among Democrats occasionally, do this. And another example of this would be like privacy and secrecy. Mm-hmm. The Constitution was set up largely to ensure that our government would be transparent and that individuals would not need to be. Uh, right. And it's, of course, you know, the mainstream wings of both the Republican and the Democratic Party, unfortunately, have reached a consensus that our government should embrace secrecy and be allowed to, while individuals should be forced to be increasingly transparent uh, to the government and corporations uh, both. And I think that's a, um, a profound concession and inversion of our constitutional principles, mm-hmm. and, and I wish it were confined to Republicans. Uh, one of the reasons I'm challenging the Speaker of the House is precisely because the corporate leadership of the Democratic Party on issues from foreign policy to fiscal accounting rules to our social programs, to climate justice, racial justice, on entirely too many issues has been uh, enabling, emboldening, marching in lockstep with a yeah. criminal administration. That is indeed true. Now, you have a law degree from Stanford. Uh, did you specialize in constitutional law? I, well, I was a teaching assistant for constitutional law. I set out at Stanford studying antitrust law. Okay. I started law school in 2000, and I went there. Uh, my vision then was to work for the government, either the mm-hmm. Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission, to bust big businesses. Uh, mm-hmm. My first job as a summer um, uh, student after my first year was the first offer I got was from the Justice Department's antitrust division. And my professors all informed me that the Bush administration had basically shut it down, and that the yeah. antitrust division had ceased doing enforcement actions. And that remained the case, more or less, for the next generation. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I, I started studying antitrust law right at the bottom fell out. And mm-hmm. it also just so happened that I was in law school between the years 2000 and 2003. That was also the years of the 9-11 attacks and the invasion of Iraq and the passage of the Patriot Act. Yeah. So by the time I left law school, there was a full-blown constitutional crisis, and that has very much been the focus of my career, uh, responding to the intersections between profiling, surveillance, detention, and torture, and the route to authoritarianism that they each independently suggest. Uh, and I would just say here that the whole was unfortunately far worse than the beer film. 
Well, I agree with you. And I don't think Obama did anything to curtail that. In fact, he he ingrained that further after the Patriot Act and Bush. And then he's now handed that entire toxic football to uh, Trump. So it's it's one of the gravest problems we face, in my opinion. So I could not agree more. I, I think of that as a very d- dangerous and sad legacy of the Obama administration, yeah. the entrenchment, the bipartisan entrenchment of what, at least under Bush, was simply still a partisan attack mm-hmm. on fundamental constitutional rights. It did take the Obama administration to basically politically launder the Bush administration's assaults on our mm-hmm. rights. And, and now we face the challenge at the democratization movement to challenge the center, uh, frankly, from both the left and the right. Right As a, as a democratic yeah. socialist, I'm challenging Speaker Pelosi from the left on issues like ensuring that every American can get to a doctor without having to risk homelessness or bankruptcy, and also from the right to the extent we're trying to preserve baseline constitutional protections to, for instance, some modicum of privacy that might enable future dissent in the face of a panopticon uh, that is both high-tech and low-tech, you know, police body cameras that are creating an entirely new surveillance vector mm-hmm. uh, on the ground in cities across the United States at the same time that the NSA dragnet continues uh, with respect to the Internet largely unimpeded. Um, that yeah. degree of monitoring and the threat it poses to not privacy, but to dissent, and by extension democracy, that is one of the fundamental concerns uh, that drove me into politics um, and policy 20 years ago. Right. And now we're seeing the states take up the issue of the facial recognition software that the federal, um, that they're dragging their feet on. This is another invasion of privacy, I think. Yeah, here in San Francisco, yeah, a lot more falling. Here in San Francisco, we just adopted, uh, and I've been working uh, from the beginning on a, uh, a new law, it's the first of its kind in the country, to deny law enforcement agencies access to face surveillance software and algorithms. Mm -hmm. And this is incredibly important in the context, particularly of police body cameras. There's a bill pending before the state legislature. My colleague, uh, Nash, just testified in support of it yesterday, in fact, uh, AB 1215, that -hmm. would deny uh, police uh, departments and law enforcement agencies across the state access to facial recognition uh, algorithms as applied to police body camera footage. And that issue is incredibly important because it is not really the case. You know, I, I wrote five years ago that police body cameras were a bait and switch scheme, that they would not advance police accountability. They would become a new uh, way for the surveillance state to extend its tentacles further, and that even if they establish transparency into discrete acts of police violence, police body cameras couldn't fix the holes in the law that guarantee effective impunity for state violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say all those things are true, and now, with the emergence of face surveillance technology, the threat that body cameras pose to individual privacy, to the right to associate, to dissent and democracy has grown even only more acute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would just say that to your uh, listeners who share those concerns, check out the new law in San Francisco. It is the first of its kind that does deny this technology to law enforcement. There are about a dozen other cities around the country that passed the first half of the new law in San Francisco, and that ensures civilian oversight over all surveillance technology. I've been working on that campaign since before it even started. I've been something of a pioneer in crafting local responses to the surveillance state and equipping grassroots coalitions at the local level with the policy tools they need to politicize the Mm -hmm. intersections of 
profiling immigrants, profiling uh, low-income and black and brown communities in the war on drugs, and the kind of counter-terror profiling uh, and uh, defense suppression that has emerged in the context of the surveillance. Right. So now I'm going to assume that you are familiar with Palantir. And what do you think private intelligence... Palantir? Yeah. Palantir? Yeah. So private intelligence firms, what I find interesting about Palantir is that this was a company, a private intelligence firm that was first exposed by the H.B. Gary uh, email hacks, you know, years ago. And that didn't get... I'm not that... familiar with that. Okay, with that so... Hack. Okay, so they were involved with some private intelligence situations. Anon folks basically hacked and released all of these uh, internal emails, documents, etc. But... It's the same players that we see now all these years later engaging in in worse behaviors, in my opinion. They were setting up, for example, they were targeting, uh, to talk about what you mean about dissent, I think this is really important. They had a system that they called persona management. And basically that was the precursor for what you see now with Cambridge Analytica, but it was focused on dismantling um, leftist activists, uh, protesters, journalists like Glenn, uh, Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept was uh, one of the targets. But the point was to use all these fake troll farms, create these fake personas and allow these private corporations and government to use them to sway opinion, public opinion. And it blows my mind because so this, this is less about surveillance and more about state propaganda. Yeah, it's a little bit of both, exactly. But pal, this right, same organization right. is the is this is the firm that is now creating the software that they're using to monitor all of this. So ICE uses Palantir. Many of the local law enforcement um, sheriffs, etc., use use their software. So this this bad yeah. apple has been around a long time and has has had very little media coverage, which kind of blows my mind. Given that. Given that everybody's so wrapped up in Cambridge Analytica and Russian quote unquote interference in our election, it, it's a little bit stunning to me because it seems to me the worst culprit. And also Palantir was involved with Cambridge Analytica as an aside. But this other stuff that you're talking about, which is sort of the flip side of the same coin, I think is far more scary, especially if you're a leftist or an activist. It's all different parts of the Hydra. And Hydra. again, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, the whole I, I didn't think yeah. when I used the term to, to reference the G.I. Joe sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, arch villain, but it fits, you know, and that the, the Hydra includes the NSA mm-hmm. and its dragnet. The Hydra yeah. includes the DEA's hemisphere program. The Hydra includes the FBI and its next generation initiative biometrics mm-hmm. on the back of the supposed immigration enforcement scheme that is now co-opted even departments of motor vehicles to collect biometric identifiers on hundreds of millions of Americans, including people suspected of no crimes, mm-hmm. who now appear in FBI databases yeah. without ever opting in or ever having a, cho- a chance to opt out. It's scary. Uh, the Hydra and Panopticon includes local police using tools like aerial surveillance drones or automatic license plate readers or cell site simulators. All of these are really important issues. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of them, I would say, this is going to go in two different directions. One, the last ten years of my life is very dedicated to promoting local responses to that pernicious emergence of authoritarianism, and I remain very committed in my day job uh, to building that resistance across the country. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the campaign I am waging to replace the Speaker of the House as the elected representative of the congressional district, Congress, 
is much more focused on the federal aspect of that equation, and I will disconnect them through this sort of analysis. One of the reasons why local activism on these issues and policy activity is so important is precisely because at the federal level, the legislative and oversight process have been either in the context of the legislation co-opted or in the context of the oversight entirely absent over the last generation. The last time Congress investigated U.S. intelligence agencies with the Mosquito, it's, it's been the better part of 50 years. And, and the only time, pardon me, the only reason that investigation happened was because whistleblowers came forward and it was obvious that the agencies had their hands in the constitutional cookie jar. Right. Any whistleblowers have come forward since then. The hand in the cookie jar is only deeper in the jar. They're only playing with more risk at fundamental rights, yet Congress hasn't shown up at all. And I would make this really clear in this context. You know, one of the reasons I'm running for Congress is so that the next time there's an Edward Snowden, they have someone like Mike Burbell who will take their concerns seriously, who will advocate for their interests, who will seek forums for their findings and disclosures to inform the public debate instead of vilifying them as a criminal and supporting their effective exile. You know, right. it, is, it is revealing to me that Edward Snowden has never been invited to testify before Congress when it was through his act, not oversight hearings, that Congress learned the facts about how executive agencies continue to abuse the rights of hundreds of millions of Americans. I was arrested in the Senate for asking questions about that mm. in, the, in the two years after the Snowden revelations, and still, years after that, Congress has, has yet to begin a meaningful process to, to investigate what he showed. And frankly, that was six years ago. Yeah. So it's not to say that the agencies have been resting on their hands, right? Like they employ tens of thousands of very smart people who have continued to innovate in ways that, frankly, we have no insight into. You know, meanwhile, the the, the, the Senate's report into CIA torture remains classified. Um, and Speaker Pelosi, when read into CIA uh, interrogation techniques that violate international human rights, that we fought a world war to establish in the first place, she helped sweep those allegations Sorry. under the rug yeah. instead of helping expose them and and enable the accountability that still remains lacking, right? Mm -hmm. The people most responsible for torture and international human rights violations of the CIA under the Bush administration now lead the agent under the Trump administration. That is a profound failure of democratic accountability, and I think it's a profound failure of our democratic leadership, and that's one reason why I'm running. Her place, Nancy Pelosi, in the House. I completely agree with you. It's frightful. What do you think about the what seems to be the fact that a lot of people are just completely tuned out of this and they don't seem to be angry about the fact that they've had their First Amendment rights eroded. I think there's a couple different issues at play there. One of them I would describe as atomization and mm -hmm. the other one is privilege. And so just to take those in turn, you know, I think there is, a, with respect to atomization, we are often taught to think of our rights as individuated and to consider them in an ahistorical context, as if the Bill of Rights were not, you know, fought for mm -hmm. to the nail yeah. uh, in the face of a proceeding tyrannical government, as if we didn't have to, uh, you know, march in the streets for years to get women the right to vote, as if we didn't have to sit in at lunch counters to gain the right to vote for African Americans. Right? Like, so these rights are not ahistorical. They were won at great sacrifice, and they have incredible meaning because they reflect... Uh, they reflect basically the trench line in the long-standing battle between people and power. And I'm very eager to stand on the side of people in that long-running and continuing struggle. Uh, 
next as we uh, as we think about the you know the climate going forward uh, and this this phenomenon of corporate rule across these different industries you know from uh, you know, we were just talking about the police industrial surveillance complex. That's yeah. one example. The healthcare industrial complex and the pharmaceutical industrial complex is another example. Fossil fuel extraction is another. You know, like we, we are fighting for the democratization of the United States, both mm-hmm. with respect to process, you know, liberating an independent voice from the Democratic and Republican consensus on corporate rule. Um, or probably that's the substantive part. The process part is around voting rights, uh, restoring the judiciary's independence to in defend counter-majoritarian rights, challenging the surveillance state to protect dissent, and investigating the executive branch to force facts suppressed by executive secrecy into the public debate. These are all different dimensions mm-hmm. uh, of the democratization struggle. Uh, I fear now I'm not answering your question directly, so give it to me again. I want to think. No, that was actually a really great act, um, great answer. Because what I'm asking it about is the indifference of voters. They don't seem to care that their First Amendment rights have been eroded you know, through Obama, there was no push. They just seem to accept this as the new normal. And I think you're right. I think part of the problem is the Democratic Party has sort of normalized this stuff by not doing anything about it. They've sort of given their consent by just uh, vis-a-vis not doing anything. And and I think about that as a co-optation of the party. You know, when when Bush started his, many of us, I, I was warning at the time, this is going to come back home. Yeah. You know, wars for profit abroad have domestic consequences, including siphoning off resources that could go to human needs, mm-hmm. right? And people are surprised now that there's a crisis in affordable housing, there's a crisis in healthcare, and there's a crisis in homelessness. And like all those things are kind of predictable when we hurl all of our tax dollars into a military industrial abyss whose yeah. founder told us to look out for it, right? It's not as if President Eisenhower didn't give a national televised yeah. address at the dawn of television warning right. the American people what was going to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. 
so is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Right. And I've, I've written a chapter in a book by Project Censored about how Eisenhower's warning explains not only wars for profit abroad, and it explains not only the NSA's dragnet, but it also explains paramilitarized police. It also explains the CIA's international human rights abuses. It also explains the CIA's role in the drug war mm-hmm. and funding its world foreign policy by contriving a domestic crisis that led to millions of people ending up in prison and our police departments ending up paramilitarized. Many people are concerned about mass incarceration. You trace the problem to its root, which is to say... The only way we can meaningfully end mass incarceration and ensure that it is not replicated and recreated in other means, one of the most essential things we have to do is make sure that CIA criminals end up in prison where they belong instead of yeah. contrived new human rights abuses uh, and, and, and corrupt enterprises like the failed and racist war on drugs. Exactly. Uh, that does, I want to come back to one other piece just with respect to privilege. The people who turn a blind eye to what's happening and might not recognize the implication of our rights. I'll, I'll quote Edward Snowden here, who very elegantly put it, if you think you have nothing to hide, it's because you might have nothing to say. And those of us who have a great deal to say, right. Right, it's pithy, but it's true. It's true. You know, we it's have absolutely a first true. Instance, and especially for, for those of us who know U.S. history, you know, many people who lack that historical view might think that the First Amendment in the United States means something, mm-hmm. and we are actually committed to free speech and dissent. Forgetting that, the FBI spent 50 years infiltrating peace groups and civil rights groups uh, and, and groups across the country that were seeking simply equal rights, uh, and that they continued to do that even after the COINTELPRO hearings of the 1970 right. when Congress did investigate. And that they're still doing it today to animal rights activists and Quakers and Muslims yeah. and most, you know, who knows who else. Uh, in that, that would context, include journalists. Um, yeah, they're doing it to lots yeah. of folks. It's a little bit yep. frightful to me that that there's just not enough righteous anger in the public at this. You know, I talked to like my niece is now 21 and I talked to her friends from that generation and they just seem to think that this is normal, that this is how it always has been. And it's like, no, it hasn't. And you guys need to start fighting back. This authoritarianism is, to- you know. It is authoritarianism. I'll totally agree with you there. But I, the only place I push back is with respect to the acceptance of young people. And maybe this is specific to particular communities because, you know, I'm, I have the benefit of, uh, you know, in the context of our campaign, mm-hmm. connecting every day with people young and old who, frankly, are very outraged. That's you know, great. We have hundreds of supporters here in San Francisco, yeah. County, and they, they all share up. And, you know, the. the we need to grow know, their ranks. Indeed. Exactly. I could not agree more. And I put it this way. I, I think part of the challenge is that we haven't had outlets for our outrage precisely because the Democratic Party has grown co-op. 
yeah. Right? That's one of the unfortunate consequences yeah. of the political sector narrowing. So, you know, I put that really, you know, sharply is just to say if anybody shares our outrage, our campaign here in the 12th Congressional District can offer an outlet mm-hmm. for that outrage. And if you are mm-hmm. on the ground, join us on the street. If you're on the ground, support the campaign from afar. There's plenty of ways to do it from making campaign contributions to shouting us out on social media. It is through that national groundswell of yeah. outrage at the bipartisan co-optation of our rights uh, that I plan to liberate the 12th Congressional District. That the underlying principles of our government will not be greed, will not be kleptocracy, will not be hatred or lies. Watch out, Washington. We the people are coming to take back Congress. And we're bringing with us some big ideas like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. We did it in New York. We did it in Minnesota. We're doing it on the national stage. And now we're bringing that voice back to San Francisco. My name's Shahid Buttar. I'm running for Congress. I'm an immigrant. I'm a Muslim. I grew up in rural Missouri. When I was 16 years old, my family lost our house as I graduated from high school. I got my undergrad degree while working full-time after 10 years of night school. Then I went to Stanford to study and teach law. I've fought for your rights for 20 years, from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. as a constitutional lawyer, policy advocate, writer, educator, and grassroots organizer. And now I'm running to serve the people of San Francisco by fighting corporate corruption in Congress. We don't have the corporate cash that's kept Nancy Pelosi in office for 30 years. In fact, we just don't take corporate money. That's why we're mobilizing the community, meeting in living rooms and neighborhood centers, why we're out in the streets fighting for change, demanding universal health care, fighting for your children and grandchildren's right to a future free from climate crisis and a government for, of, and by the people instead of the 1%. A voice for school teachers, working class families, and immigrants, the 99%. This movement is just getting started. After 30 years of the same representation, San Francisco deserves a champion willing to return our city to the front lines of the progressive movement. Our city stands for inclusion and pride, peace and justice, and environmental sustainability. We can't wait another 30 years for our leaders to evolve on climate change. Delay is no better than denial. The time for action was yesterday. America is the only advanced country in the world where getting sick can leave you homeless, and higher education buries people in debt for the rest of their lives. The only voices we need in Congress are ones who will take action to fix that. You have a choice. Either let profit-driven corporations destroy our future, or instead vote to reclaim this country for the people. Vote for Shahid Buttar in the March 2020 primary, and join our campaign in the meantime. We can protect the future. And we must. I'm Shahid Buttar. I approve this message, and I invite your support. I love that you use the term liberate. It needs to be liberated. We all need to be liberated because Nancy Pelosi has a lot of power, not just locally, but nationally within the party. So it's a problem. Um, I want to shift gears for a second and ask you about um, your opinion on social media platforms. We've seen uh, demonetization. We've seen banning. We've seen all of these various issues that have been happening. Uh, I think the latest outrage on YouTube has its roots two years ago when they lost several major advertisers because their videos were Uh, Their ads were appearing in front of videos that were for hate speech and YouTube was failing to monitor that. 
And then they created an algorithm that is so flawed, it catches up any journalist discussing neo-Nazism, even though it's not hate speech. So uh, here we are. Uh, we've had Facebook banning people, Twitter banning people, and this includes leftists. I, so I want to know what you think should be done about this. This is not entirely a First Amendment right because it's a private corporation since the government. Um, having said that, Calling the manager doesn't necessarily help because I don't think YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, have a vested interest necessarily in leftist policy. They're corporations. But at the same time, I'm not sure the government is doing a better job. I mean, they've really unhinged on our First Amendment rights as well as far as the surveillance things that we've been talking about. So what do you think the balance is between censorship and hate speech? How do we make this uh, function? It's a, it's a great question, and it's a compelling one, particularly given the way that social media has increasingly become the public square. Yeah, it's the Agora. Uh, and, and I, I call it the right. Agora, right? Uh, I, I don't think it necessarily, the emergence of it requires, though, abandoning our core constitutional commitments, and they include uh, robust freedom of speech. And I want to unpack what that means. For people mm-hmm. who don't think of that through a historical lens, they might think that social media platform deplatforming people or demonetizing them or taking down some posts, that that is the most pernicious risk to speech. And and it is problematic. I'm not dismissing that. All I need to say is the government is no solution, particularly under this president. Anybody who thinks that government intervention of social media platforms is going to help might forget who's at the White House, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just to say the government is not the solution to this problem. I do think that there are non-executive branch solutions, like, for instance, antitrust law. Yeah. We've, I've done some writing on EFS behalf, in fact, about how antitrust law could be better strengthened by particularly federal enforcement agencies, the very same ones that abandoned enforcement when I was a law student. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were writing recommendations for how they can resuscitate their enforcement, for instance, by considering harms to consumer welfare beyond price. Mm-hmm. which was a very ideological insistence by the Chicago School of Economics that, frankly, was bankrupt at the outset, right. but really neutered. <laughs> right? I mean, it's always been basically a power grab. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the legal system didn't internalize it that way, and now it's become baked into the norms, if not right. the law. It's totally and, baked and we also in. Talk, and we have to fix that. And I think that's a better lever to deal with these problems around corporate malfeasance than limit speech. For instance, if we had a robust commitment to uh, a doctrine in the antitrust law called the Essential Facilities Doctrine, which requires basically other other contexts in which it's operated has required the first builder of a bridge across the Mississippi mm-hmm. to allow competing, competing firms access to the bridge. It's also been required to, uh, that AT&T, when they built the National Telecommunications Network, the Essential Facilities Doctrine was held to require AT&T to allow competitors access. Uh, the very same doctrine could be held, for instance, to require Facebook to, to allow competitors to have access to interoperable data sets that a, that a user might say, I want to download my Facebook history, not just as a useless, comment-delimited file that's probably good. I want to download it in a format that I can take to an open-source alternative like Diaspora or Mastodon yeah. uh, or some other you know, alternative. These are opportunities through the antitrust law that wouldn't require government intervention, uh, uh, which could very easily become censorship. Last thing I'll say here, my colleagues at EFF uh, were uh, in cooperation with a whole bunch of other organizations and a coalition and so on. A set of principles we call the Santa Clara principles, which I'll boil down to essentially requiring 
numbers, notice, and appeal. So the Santa Clara principles, rather than invite government intervention, which could make the problem worse, they call on companies to provide to the public aggregate numbers revealing, for instance, how many requests they get from government to take content down or deactivate an account. Or if you care, get out of your chair. If you want to lend a hand, take a stand. And if you're tired of control by conservative factions, get up and take action. So you go home, you watch the network news, get inundated by the views of the mainstream, the moderate, the political middle that got skewed to the right by historical riddles. You be fiddling with your computer on the web and you found yourself appalled at the truth you just read. You said to all your friends who lend you the ear how this president should have every person on this planet feeling fear, near, middle, and far, marring the international reputation of what could be a fine, wonderful nation struggling over history to seek enlightened policies, to be a polity that reflects not just liberty, right, but also bona fide democracy, equality. These are the values in which we're all taught to believe. These are the values we should see reflected institutionally right here in D.C. And if you agree with me, join us in the streets. Um, so I want to ask you one more thing. Um... Would you say Pelosi's greatest failing is her unwillingness at this point to impeach Trump? I would say that Pelosi's greatest failing at this moment is in her willingness to embolden the administration, and I think her reticence to pursue impeachment is one part of that. I think other examples, ways in which the Speaker is emboldening the President, include marching in lockstep with his foreign policy from Venezuela to Palestine. Uh, mm-hmm. Other ways that the speaker emboldens our criminal president include uh, adopting Republican fiscal austerity accounting rule, the mm-hmm. PAYGO rule that Pelosi imposed as soon as she became the speaker, basically ensured that the progressive majority in Congress can't spend into the deficit to meet the needs of the American people. That's a Republican position taken by our Democratic speaker of the House. Uh, I think in each of those arenas, impeachment, PAYGO, and foreign policy are probably the clearest examples, but there are others where, uh, for better or worse, the leader of the Democratic Party is not only not engaging in resistance, uh, but is unfortunately enabling our criminal president. And so I agree with you. I think um, just just on uh, just pure policy alone that we should have impeachment because this is about the integrity of the system. But my other concern is that President Pence might be worse. Do you think that's the case? He would be worse. So the op-ed that we wrote on uh, impeachment addresses that. There's a professor at Tufts University used to serve as a staff of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee by the name of Michael Glennon. Mm-hmm. And uh, his analysis, we absolutely agree with it. If the president is removed uh, from office, the vice president should go too, because to the extent the president gained office through right. means that were objectively uh, um, you know, deemed uh, you know, uh, unethical by, by Congress and to be the high crimes and misdemeanors, right, that would be the, the basis for impeachment, that the vice president shouldn't gain access to the fruit of a poisonous tree. We already recognize mm-hmm. the need to unwind the fruits of a poisonous tree, for instance, in other contexts like criminal law. Uh, those same principles should apply in the impeachment context. So if Trump goes, uh, and, uh, Pence should absolutely be included within the article of impeachment. Okay. I think that's great. So now if folks want to donate to your campaign, where's the best place for them to do that? We welcome folks to visit us online at www.shawhidforchange.us. That's S-H-A-H-I-D, like David, F-O-R, change.us. 
you can donate through Access there, sign up to volunteer, uh, or explore some of our other interviews that we've done before. Thank you so much for, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you.